This is Karin Zissis of ASCOA Online. In 2020, Brazil may be facing some of the same economic hurdles that it did last year, but the world around it is changing fast. The Peterson Institute's Monica de Bol talks with my colleague Luisa Lemmy about the Bolsonaro government one year in and its efforts to recover growth amid global concern about its management of the Amazon and rising discontent in Latin America. You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latino America in Foco. America Latina in Foco. A podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. Monica, thank you so much for coming back to Latin American in Focus podcast. We're really happy to have you. My pleasure. Monica, we spoke the last time, it was July uh, 2019, so it's been basically six months ago. And considering the world we are living today, it's been ages. <laughs> In the last six months, we had protests erupting all over Latin America. There was a trade war between the United States and China. Uh, the growth of Amazon fires was not public yet, was not public knowledge yet. And now we started 2020, uh, afraid of a new war starting in the Middle East. Um, what were the most important shifts for Brazil and Latin America from then to now? Uh, how disruptive 2019 was in its second half? So I think the second half was really very disruptive, especially, you know, the months from September until, uh, until the end of the year. Um, the, the protests and the demonstrations in Latin America were very significant. And I think um, even if they didn't have a direct impact on Brazil, they certainly did change some minds. And they left, you know, some people in Brazil concerned about whether or not, you know, similar things would start there, which is, which is always, you know, an additional cloud of uncertainty in a situation that's already not all that great. Um, so I think that that was a very big deal and we're still trying to understand some of the causes of these protests, whether we're able to see commonalities or not, to what extent, you know, a lot of them are very specific to the countries and to the environment under which they came about. So with all of these, with all of these questions still up in the air, with all of these questions still unanswered, I think the sense still remains that, you know, any country in Latin America at this point, um, really any country in the world, but speaking of the region, any country in Latin America could eventually be affected by the same time, type of social upheaval that we've seen. So I think that was certainly one of the trends in the second half of, of 2019 that had a major effect on let's say the, the, the uncertainty and sort of the psychological outlook, you know, for, for the region going forward. Right. Um, when we talked about those protests happening in Latin America, you know, like even countries that were considered models for protecting themselves or protecting their own economies uh, and diversifying, you know, like being more developed. Like we talked about Chile, the last episode that we recorded together, you know, even these examples are now suffering with this discontent and discontent is, comes from uh, economic issues, right? Uh, given that the problems for Brazil economy are so hard to solve um, in the short term, uh, 
are we going to see this happening in Brazil too? I think it's possible. Um, I, I don't rule that out at all because of course, you know, if, as I was saying in the beginning, we can look at these demonstrations from the point of view of each country and looking at the specifics in each country and why they came about in each country from that perspective, or we can try to find some kind of common theme, which doesn't, of course, explain everything because the specifics are important, but, you know, the common themes are present. And there are two, I think, common themes um, running through all of these demonstrations. One's inequality, and the second one, which is tied to inequality, but um, is separate in some dimensions, is social mobility. So people are broadly dissatisfied with the state of play when it comes to inequality and when it comes to social mobility. If we look at these two issues in the Brazilian context, um, we know, because that's in the data, that's in the numbers, we know that inequality has actually gone up in the last two, three years or so. Um, and there's nothing really on the horizon in terms of policies that's going to alleviate that situation because the current government is not very concerned with social programs. And in fact, you know, one of the things that they just did was to set a relatively low bar for the minimum wage. Um, since there are a lot of people who depend on the minimum wage or you know, their salaries are some, somehow indexed to the minimum wage in Brazil, they're not gonna see significant increases in their earning power. And that, of course, has consequences for inequality and consequences for social mobility. So it has consequences for both. On the social mobility front, what we have seen is a regression because we, in, in Brazil, unlike what's happened in other Latin American countries, there has been an increase in poverty. So in other places, even in those places that have experienced protests, poverty has remained either stagnant or it has continued to go down a little bit. That's the case in Chile. Poverty was still, is still declining. But in Brazil, poverty and extreme poverty in particular have risen dramatically in the last few years and in particular in the last two years or so. Um, that's a huge concern because that, of course, affects, you know, as I was saying, that affects social mobility. So people who previously might have acceded to, you know, the, might have seen other possibilities in their lives, might have seen, you know, a brighter future ahead, better opportunities and so on, they're backsliding and they feel it. So in Brazil, the conditions are actually, if, if we're just looking at those two things, you know, conditions are worse. And so the elements, let's say, the, the, the ingredients are there for people to get frustrated. Um, and thus, I, I, I don't rule out. In case we see the, the current economic recovery continue to be very slow, sluggish, labor markets not reacting very much, um, if that continues, then I think at some point frustrations will boil over in the same way that they have in, in other parts of Latin America. Brazil had no protests and, and approval for Jair Bolsonaro. It's higher than approval for other presidents in Latin America, right? Like, uh, but we've seen enough chaos in Brazil in the past year, right? Uh, the Amazon fires, her negotiations uh, for the EU-Mercosur deal, uh, this happened also right after we spoke. There were so many environmental disasters beyond the Amazon fires. 
the oil spills all over the coast of Brazil, the Brumadinho Dam collapse that happened in the beginning of the year. Uh, when we think about those uh, those disasters, like how much of the country's economy is losing because of climate change? I think a considerable amount. Um, and I think the, the, the most worrisome trend in the case of Brazil is that that's not going to get any better. That's actually likely to worsen because, again, if there's one area that has been criticized heavily by both people who are in Brazil as well, people who are outside of Brazil, it's, it's the environment. Um, so, you know, the whole dismantling that has been happening on environmental policies, the dismantling of environmental agencies, those that monitor and inspect, as well as, a, as, well as those that conduct law enforcement. Um, all of these have been major issues. They have been tied in with the Amazon fires, but they've also been tied in with the case of Brumadinho and with um, you know, other potential risks of disasters of that sort. And the fact that this is a government that doesn't seem to really care um, in the way that it should about these issues and about how to handle this, these issues and how to address these issues is, a, is not just a big concern going forward for Brazil and Brazil's economy, but it, it should also be, and this is the part that surprises me, it should also be a concern for the government itself because it hurts the government and it hurts the government of Brazil when it is attempting to negotiate certain things. So for example, take the EU Mercosur deal. Um, Brazil's environmental stance has created a lot of noise within the EU. Now, of course, part of that noise is opportunistic because you have you know, some countries that are very protectionist when it comes to their agriculture, France, Ireland, others, um, and which of course are kind of balking at the EU Mercosur deal because they would see, you know, their farmers would have to compete with Mercosur farmers, and mm -hmm. there's some things that Mercosur does way better than they do, um, and the the products really are competitive. So there's opportunism in that, but apart from that, there's also a real concern over environmental issues because one thing that we can't forget is that the EU as a block is moving to really um, start imposing very aggressive environmental policies to decarbonize the economy by 2050. And the goals are really very ambitious. So these are countries that at the moment are very concerned about these issues and are, are taking these issues very seriously and are looking at these issues with a very sensitive eye. And the fact that Brazil is looking at them with a very insensitive eye makes it stand out and makes it stand out in, in not such a great way. So that could be an impediment to the, the final conclusion or ratification of the EU Mercosur deal, as some countries in the EU have signaled. It's also an issue for Brazil, Brazil's accession to the OECD. So one other piece of news that we had was that the U.S. would support Brazil in its, in its bid to become a member of the OECD, rather than Argentina, which was, you know, the country that the U.S. was supporting before. Mm. Um, regardless of why that has happened, I mean, obviously that has happened for a lot of reasons, including the fact that the government of Argentina is now different uh, because the country's had elections. Brazil's bid for the OECD 
it's, you know, if it, if it does go forward, having the support of the U.S. is great, but let's not forget that the, the OECD is an institution that's largely European. Its bid will depend on how European countries see Brazil. And at the moment... It doesn't depend on the, on the United States. It doesn't depend on the United States. And at the moment, because of these environmental issues, Brazil's standing with respect to European countries is not that great. So that will affect those negotiations as well. So it affects the EU Mercosur deal, it affects the OECD uh, membership bid. And obviously, you know, going beyond the EU, it affects investor stance towards the country too, because climate change is now the major issue that we're facing. We see companies everywhere trying to come to grips with this. Um, we see big investment companies which are trying to change their investment operations to mm -hmm. take climate change into account. And then if you have a country out there like Brazil, which is, you know, disregarding climate change completely and even doing things that are detrimental to the environment, like, you know, in some sense, um, you know, providing the conditions for the destruction of the Amazon, um, these things are very bad, you know, and will ref reflect badly on the country as they have already to an extent. It's, it is in a sense we're in a point when we're seeing somewhat of a breakdown in the global order at the same time that this is happening and we're talking about the rationale of like Brazil not looking good to other countries. We also see leaders of major economies taking a more nationalistic approach. We look in in the Americas, we can see Trump in the United States, we can see Lopez Obrador in Mexico, who never left the country in more than a year now of office, in office. And, and where do you see Bolsonaro fitting into this? Louisa, I love that you asked that question because um, I'm in the process of writing a book on nationalism. <laughs> That's and great. And in particular on economic nationalism. So the nationalist content that you, we see today in, in, in economic policies and um, of several types. I mean, trade is obviously the one that comes first to mind, but there are others. And, you know, we in the process of writing this book, um, yes, we've been looking at current present cases, but we've been sort of trying to draw parallels with history. Right. So we're looking at, you know, how nationalism manifested in the past and comparing it to how nationalism is manifesting itself today. Um, so it is, first of all, you know, one thing one thing that is clear is that the nationalist trend is is really a trend and it's pretty much sparking up everywhere. So there's kind of a contagion effect from country to country when it comes to you know, adopting nationalist stances on different policies. Um, it has affected Brazil. It has affected Brazil in a way that is, at the moment, more rhetoric than policy, properly speaking. But it certainly has affected Brazil, and it's certainly reflected in um, things that Bolsonaro says, and sometimes in things that Bolsonaro does. I think on, in the case of the, the one policy area where I do see, you know, the nationalists leaning, being better expressed in the case of Brazil is in the area of the environment. Because the whole, you know, thinking behind developing and exploiting the Amazon, the way that Bolsonaro and his administration are talking about this issue is very nationalist. 
I mean, it's about, you know, saying that this is our territory, right. this is our sovereign land, and we have the right as the nation to explore this land. Right. So it sounds it, very much like the dictatorship times, like the, the military government in Brazil in the 70s, what they would say about the Amazon was about occupying that territory to... Yeah to protect it or something or to yeah. protect it in a sense of not protect the environment of it but protect our sovereignty yeah protect the sovereignty and protect our economic interests right, right. our national economic interests in the amazon so there there i think you see very clearly the rhetoric associated with policy because they're clear there's clear policy intended to the purpose of doing what the rhetoric is saying in other areas, so, you know, when it comes to sort of cultural issues and other issues, we do see Bolsonaro emulating what he hears. So, you know, he, he does emulate Trump when he talks about, you know, issues that range from human rights to, you know, other things. Um, but there, there aren't any actual policies as such. I mean, there are some, but, you know, it's not... Mm -hmm. um, it's more rhetoric than action, but on the environment, it's both. It's rhetoric and action. But there is another thought that when we were talking about nationalism and, and we talked about this duality in the Bolsonaro government and the, the last time we spoke, um, one quick way to boost any economic growth is trade, right? It's opening the economy and Brazil's economic minister, Paulo Guedes, wants to open the economy. So can Gettys really do it? Where are the dangers here of this duality? And is, is, can we say that this is not a nationalistic approach, right? Like how that's different. There's this sense that, you know, if you are a nationalist leader or if you're a nationalist government, then you necessarily have to pursue nationalist economic policy which is the opposite of liberal economic policy in the sense of being market liberal, right? Um, and in fact, in what we have seen, you know, with protectionism in the US and industrial policy in China and, you know, all sorts of other examples is that indeed, you know, nationalist governments do end up applying nationalist economic policies. And then in Brazil, you have this disconnect because you have a government that does have a nationalist rhetoric, as we were speaking before, but it's apparently doing or wants to do a lot of very market-friendly, market-based reforms. So how do you marry those two things? And that's where the historical context is, is interesting because Brazil is not an exception in that regard. There have been, and I will give you the most extreme example, okay, right now. The most extreme example where that has happened, the exact same thing happened, is Italy under Mussolini. Oh. So when you go back to, Mussolini came to power in 1922 in Italy as a democratically elected leader, constitutionally elected, constitutionally um, supported leader. So, and then he later became a dictator. But when he first came to power between 1922 and 1925, his policies were extremely liberal for the time. I mean, even when you compare Italy to other countries at the time, 
Italy was more liberal than a lot of countries in Europe hmm. under Mussolini, who was a nationalist, you know, very much a nationalist. Um, he began sliding into more nationalist policies later. So because he had a very long term in, in, as a leader, because he became a dictator and, you know, he was in power until 1943, he had, you know, 20 years to basically transform from a, a, a sort of economic liberal, let's say, to an outright economic nationalist. But that's what happened. So my point is, you know, you don't really have to, to call a government nationalist. It, it's not even necessary. It's certainly not sufficient, but it's not even necessary for economic policies to be nationalist at first. At some point, they do become nationalist if the nationalist government remains in power. But at first, that doesn't have to be the case. So I'm not saying that Brazil is, is, is Italy in the 20s, nor am I saying that Bolsonaro is Mussolini. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that there is a historical precedent that supports this apparent dichotomy. Um, when it comes to trade, I think, you know, Geddes has, has given and has said all the right things about trade and has, you know, all the right sound bites. But again, when it comes to action, what has he done? He hasn't really done very much, right? Um, there have been some tariff reductions, unilateral tariff reductions, but Brazil already has, the tariffs are not all that high in Brazil. Um, they've come down significantly from what they, they used to be. What Brazil does have is a lot of non-tariff barriers, and those nobody has touched. So things like local content requirements and, you know, all sorts of obscure trade instruments that Brazil uses um, as... And that, that, that's part of the, the Brazil cost that business people talk about, that it's like the bureaucracy, the red tape. Yeah, that's exactly right. So in these areas, there's a lot to do, but Geddes hasn't really done it, done much. Not because he doesn't want to, he probably does, but these are difficult areas to work with because there are very strong interest groups, you know, in these particular areas. So the political um, aspect or the political economy aspect of this is extremely hard to resolve. Then there's the question of, you know, so that's one aspect of, of trade. The other aspect of trade is trade agreements. And there, <clears throat> what Geddes has clearly said is, you know, when it, when, and he said this at the Peterson Institute, where, where, as you know, I work, when he was here last year in November, mm -hmm. uh, at the end of November, he, when he was talking about all of his reforms and sort of, you know, listing the reforms that he wanted to do, trade was number five. Institutional Fiscal Framework is the name of the book. Chapter one, Fiscal Council of the Republic, awareness, fiscal responsibility on the major, on the major actors. Chapter two, tools for managers so that you can run and control your expenses. Chapter three, revenues, more and more of Brazil, less and less of Brazilia. We are not a centrally planet. Of course, we are still, but we want to decentralize this thing. Chapter four, administrative reform. Mm. Chapter. So 
there are many other priorities before trade. So it's as if he's saying, okay, yes, trade agreements are important. We realize that, you know, Brazil is a very closed economy. It needs to forge partnerships with other countries. It needs, needs to follow certain things that other Latin American countries have done. But this is not at the top of the agenda. At the top of the agenda are a bunch of other things. And these other things are very significant. These are things like tax reform, Right. And, you know, the reform of the state and, you know, the downsizing of the government, you know, mm. all of which are things that will involve a lot of political negotiation. So if we're going to go through this entire process or this part of the list before we get to trade, we're not going to get to trade. And we're not going to get to thinking about trade agreements or anything like that. Got it. Dyke, you explained it before that that Brazil economic stagnation not necessarily compares with other emerging markets, right? Uh, we can look at developed economies' problems. And when we think about Brazil not being able to grow and lack of productivity, you know, aging population, and then there is this general discontent, you know, like in Brazil, you put unemployment at the rate that it is now, you know, on top of that. Can we look at other countries and see examples of solutions or see, let's say, examples of like, what would it be a doable ranking of issues? Because if you're saying like, you know, his five, five top issues rank of like, this is what I need to do, needs to be different. What do, do we have other examples of people, like other countries that got to, to figure that out? So the difficult part of that is that Brazil is a country that has a lot of problems that look like advanced economy problems. So the ones that, you know, you describe aging population, productivity levels, which are very low, lack of dynamism in the economy more generally, which we can see in many ways. One way by which we can see it is if we look at, you know, what's happened to real interest rates, for example. So we know that real interest rates in Brazil, that is interest rates minus expected inflation, real interest rates are at an all-time low, and this has not done anything for the economy. This has not, has not generated an investment boost, or you know, it, has, it hasn't propped up consumption, it hasn't really had much of an effect. So when you look at Brazil on, in, in that way, um, it looks very much like a country that's having advanced economy problems, and yet it has all of these other additional problems which are very much developing economy problems. So mm -hmm. it's a mixture of the two, right? So it's unique in, in, in a way. I mean, when you look across the world today, in the advanced countries, there's lots of, um, the, the, the big topic of conversation is, you know, given that these economies are failing to grow in the way that we'd like to see them grow, what is it that we can do? What kind of fiscal policy can we do? Does pol do policies that are geared towards decarbonization, for example, would they generate stimulus? And it can be argued that in some cases they might, because of course, you know, if you are going to have a big decarbonization push like Europe wants to have, that involves a lot of public investment. Now, Europe is in a position to do that because they have, some countries have more, some countries have less, but by and large, they have the fiscal space to do a big public investment program that's green, 
right? That's mm-hmm. meant to decarbonize the economy. So there's room to stimulate the economy that way. That same kind of room is not present in Brazil because we have all these other fiscal problems that we still haven't resolved. Is the solution the one that's been outlined by Gates? Well, I mean, certainly, you know, the fact that the government is bloated and the state, those infrastructure of the state is bloated, that's definitely an issue. And, you know, reform of the state, which is something that we've been talking about for decades now, um, is desirable um, in that context. And it could free up valuable resources to do other things, right? But the, but, but the problem, I mean, the devil is always in the details of how you go about doing these things. So when we say, you know, the state's bloated and the state spent and the, the government spends too much, there is a danger in, in that kind of statement in sort of just going all out and start cutting expenditures everywhere. And then when you, when you stop and, and, you, and, and you look at what you've actually done, you've managed to actually increase a very much developing, these days it's also an advanced economy problem, but in the case of Brazil, it's very- um, Perfect perfect example this week, uh, again, is to not replace people that were retiring on the pension system, uh, the INSS system, uh, because it was very, too many people work there, so the ones that are retiring, we're not gonna rehire anyone. And then the lines for people requesting their pensions increased dramatically in some states in the country. So that that's the type of thing that you were talking about, right? Like you, you talked about, and when we went through this problems the Brazilian economy has and this economic stagnation, I just wanted to say to the listeners that the, the previous conversation that we had goes in detail on that. So we it explains much more that I just don't wanna repeat it what we talked about before. You talked about how th- this government now could be more creative. Um, what are we talking about in 2020? What does that mean? So I think there's something that, there's a missed opportunity here that the government's simply not paying attention to, and it's sitting right there in the, in the finance ministry. It's been sitting right there for the last two years. So we were talking about the size of the state. Now, there are two ways by which you can, do, you can make things more efficient. You can just cut cut spending, but then that might have unintended consequences, such as the one that you mentioned. Or you can start not by just going out and cutting, but actually looking at the areas where you spend, where where you actually waste resources. So in other words, where you spend very inefficiently. Two years ago, the World Bank conducted a, a, a detailed expenditure review of the Brazilian government. And it came up with a big report with a lot of good recommendations. That report has been sitting in the finance ministry. Nobody has done anything with it. So I would say that the the way to start would be to pick up that report and look at what what are the areas of spending that could be cut without generating the kind of unintended consequences that would make Brazil's developing country problems worse. So for example, what are the spending cuts that you can do that won't affect social programs, that won't affect pensions, that won't affect certain benefits that you know people need? 
people need, including to survive, you know, and, and to be able to consume because you want them to consume. So I so I think this is something that this government really should be looking at. And it just surprises me that they're not because the work has been done already. It's a matter of picking up that report and reading it and analyzing it and seeing, you know, how these things can be actually implemented. And in a lot of the areas that the World Bank signaled in that report, um, where inefficiencies are blatant, the work to be done doesn't necessarily involve a lot of negotiations with Congress. Mm. You know, there's there some things that the government can simply choose to do without making it into a huge political issue with, with Congress. So that, for me, is a, is a major missed opportunity. And one of the things that I can't get my head around as to why, you know, with the report sitting right there, no one's picking it up to read. When you think about 2020, though, like, you know, the Brazilian government started the year revising its GDP growth projection uh, to 2.4 from 2.32. Uh, why, why the optimism? Uh, what, what has happened? And then thinking about what Paulo Guedes or the the economy policy of where the country is going to go towards now. We talked about pension reform before this year. The big thing is going to be or should be tax reform, according to his five priorities. Right. Um, is that the way to go in terms of structural reforms that are so needed and people talked about it so much? So tax reform is certainly needed. I mean, it's it, tax system in Brazil is, is, is very onerous. It's very um, cumbersome. It's intricate. It's difficult to understand. It's part of the, the Brazil costs, so part of the Custo Brasil. Um, there are so many, you know, different World Bank reports comparing tax structures and the Brazilian tax structure always stands out. It's always an outlier in terms of, you know, how, how onerous it is and how inefficient it is. So tax reform is certainly something that needs to be done. Um, again, it's like pension reform. It's been talked about for decades and nobody's doing it. Nobody's done anything because it's difficult. It's not easy. Um, it's it's more difficult than pension reform in some ways because you affect, you know, by if you really do an overhaul of the tax system, you affect the states and you affect the revenues of the states. And of course, we know that subnational finances are in very dire straits at the moment. Um, so politically, it's a it's a very it's a huge negotiation and it's something that could take a lot of time. But that being said, there are blueprints out there. You know, people have come up with ways of, there, there are at least two that I can think of, if not three, of, you know, how do you simplify the tax system? How do you make some taxes into one? Um, how do you, you know, transform taxes which emulate value-added taxes into an actual value-added tax rather than having this cascading tax structure which ends up affecting firms and affecting consumers and, and all of that. So I think tax reform is really important. It's a, it's a major item on the agenda. It would consume a lot of time, um, including to get the right tax reform done. But I think it's something that Brazil really does need to think hard about, including from the inequality perspective, because, of course, the tax structure in Brazil, apart from everything else, is highly regressive, meaning it affects the poor. We tax the poor relatively more than we do the rich. 
Mm-hmm. So we need to fix that. Um, and, and that could only be fixed if you, if you went through the exercise of a tax reform. So for me, that should be the follow-up, the natural follow-up to the pension reform. But it seemed like that was going to be the, the follow-up to the pension reform at one point. And then the, go- the government, and Geddes in particular, sort of deviated to something else and started talking about reform of the state and downsizing the state and all of that. So one of the things that I think that the government has kind of failed to do and they need to do it, um, including to justify their growth projections, is they need to set the priorities and they need to tell people what the priorities are. At the moment, they seem to be shifting around. You know, They shift from one thing to another and you can't do everything at the same time. You have to pick one and stick with it. I mean, look at how long it took us to do pension reform. So you really need to pick an issue and, and stick with that. As for the optimism, um, it's always the same story, right? So every year starts out that way. The government has some optimistic projection for GDP. Markets are euphoric because they think that confidence is going to come back. And this is going to be the year when finally investment's going to pick up. And, you know, it's the same old story every time. And then what we, what, what then people seem to realize slowly is that things are not that easy because of all these structural bottlenecks that Brazil has. So the so-called advanced economy problems that we discussed at length in the other podcast. Um, So to my mind, you know, what is likelier to happen is that we we will see growth in Brazil this year. We may see growth that's higher than what we've seen so far, but I would not um, at this point be optimistic. You know, I, I would rather be realistic and work my way up rather than work my way down, which has been the trend over the last few years when it comes to economic projections by markets and by the government. Right. So to basically get to the end of the year and announce that it was higher than what you projected. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about all this tough things to do politically in a year where we see where we're talking we started the conversation talking about that about how we this can be a little dangerous in the sense that there is this discontent all over the country all over the region what would you say that for 2020 you know let's say you're it would be my final question and then we'll see but what would it be your 2020 how would you start let's say carnaval has passed what would you do if you were in Paulo Guedes' seat? Set a priority. What is 2020 going to be about? Is it going to be about downsizing, downsizing the state or is it going to be about tax reform? Choose one and stick to it because it's already going to be hard enough given that 2020 is an election year in Brazil and it's an important one. So we're going to have municipal elections. And we have them, you know, two years after the presidential elections, typically. They are not midterm elections in the way that we have them in the U.S. But my sense is that this year in Brazil, because of all the political backdrop and the polarization and everything else that's been happening and the fact that you have a lot of people already looking to 2022, these municipal elections are actually going to be like midterms or they're going to feel like midterms. So at one point during this year, things are going to stop and everything's going to revolve around the municipal elections. And if the government hasn't come up with its 
you know, one desired reform effort for the year, it's going, it's not going, it's, it's going to end up not doing anything. So the, to me, the first thing that Geddes has to do once the country starts functioning again, which obviously is after Carnival, is say, this is the one thing that I want to advance this year. Maybe, I'll, maybe we'll conclude it, maybe we won't, but we need to make sufficient progress on it. What is it? He has to answer that question. That's great. I'm going to leave it at that now. Uh, Monica, thank you so much for coming to... Uh, Letting American Focus podcast again. We we're really fortunate to have you, and and I always learn so much. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me again. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Karin Zissis. This episode was produced by Louisa Lenny. The music in this podcast was recorded at America Society in New York City. Find out about upcoming concerts at musicoftheamericas.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can help us spread the word. Please take a moment to subscribe, share, and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.